0: And welcome to the off Culture Quilt. My name is Frances, and I'll be your hostess. Hello, and welcome to episode 240. 240? 240. 240. That's pretty cool. I'm sitting on the porch. I'm taking a little break from work. Uh, I have a house to myself. The man typically works at home from Friday, which is very nice, and we go out to lunch and have a good time, but... Uh, He's out on a walk, and I realize I'm trying to post these episodes every two weeks, and uh, yeah, Wednesday, this coming Wednesday, will be two weeks, so I need to actually talk to you and tell you things. Um, I am still, quilting-wise, just playing around. I am having a good time, particularly this, I'm working with stripes, which I love, and I'm doing this thing with orange and blue stripes, which I'm enjoying. Um... You know, it's funny. So it's, it's improvisation. It's just up on my design wall. I add stuff and move stuff around and it's a, it's a funny process because I'll have things just the way I like them and then I'll add something and it's not quite right and then I start messing around and then suddenly I don't like anything at all. So you just have to have faith in the process that you will recompose and get it back to a place where you're happy. Um yeah and again I'm just I'm still playing and this is good for me and you know I was thinking about uh, submissions for quilt con at the end of November I don't think I'm going to submit this year I, I have some projects that I could the only thing I might submit is my uh, is the back of my pinwheel quilt because I like the back very much it's improvised and I would call it backside and the the quilt itself is hand quilted And so actually seeing the backside of my hand quilting. It's not pretty, but I think it makes it interesting texturally speaking. So I I possibly will submit that. I have some other ideas and some works in progress, but I just need to chill, you know. I just I have a new book out and there's a lot of self-promotion and look at me and all the stuff surrounding that kind of thing. And I just feel like yeah, I'm tired of competing, you know, you feel like here I am in the marketplace competing for your attention with my books. And then here I am in the quilt marketplace competing for a judge's attention. I'm like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure that's a great thing for me right now, but I do like my backside idea of the backside quilt. And it would kind of tickle me if it got in. I I'm not sure it would have much of a chance. I also would not be the least disappointed. Oh, I'd be disappointed, but surprised if it did not. But that might be the only thing. I'm certainly not going to make any great efforts at this point to, to finish up something to to submit. Um, I I'll I, I'll probably try to have some stuff to submit for Atlanta 2021, which I'm really excited about. Uh, I, uh, I have tons of friends in Atlanta um, Holly Ann's there, and Quilt and Jenny, and uh, my, my my brother is in Atlanta. I kind of would be surprised, you know, when, when you go to these shows. It's so intense. I'd be surprised if I got a visit him, but you never know. Um, maybe like a, a Sunday breakfast or something, but uh, so it's nice that it's a fairly short drive, and uh, it's going to be a big time, so I'm looking forward to that. I'd love to go to Austin, in 2020, but that's not going to happen, I don't think. So anyway, so I am playing with stripes. I'm having a good time, and you know, I have this goal that I don't think I'm going to make of doing five charity quilts this year. But I do have two quilts that are ready to be quilted, and that I really want to do. That I want to do the play around the way I'm playing. I do want to finish Kate's quilt, which of course the back is becoming not complicated but um, PC. You know, so I'm just improvising that, and I'm really enjoying it. But, um, yeah, just when you are piecing together small scraps, <laughs> it takes a long time. So I am still working on that. and so. But the quilts that I have, the charity quilts, are fairly small. They're lap quilts, and so the, I could quilt them pretty quickly. I could quilt them in an afternoon. Things have been kind of a weird mix of either too busy or not enough stuff to do. Um, I'm in an odd place work-wise where I have handed a draft in to my editor it's probably going to be a little while before I hear back from her and so the question is what to do, I'm working on some friendship album stories still kind of trying to figure out uh, what to do with the novel Um, I'm actually sending it out to agents I've I've gotten one rejection it was a very nice rejection, it was personal it was from the agent herself and not a turn, but just said, yeah, this isn't the right project for me, but I, I, um, I'm sure you'll have no problem placing it somewhere else. And I don't know if that's true. One of the things about Friendship Album 1933 is that it's very long. It's the, the manuscript is 550 pages and that translates probably to an 800 page novel, probably. And that's, that's big. That's an expensive novel to print. Um, you know, it would have to be priced you know, around $30. So it, it might be an agent would feel like, yeah, I'm not sure I can place this. And the other thing, of course, it's 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 niche fiction. I like to think that it's more than niche, that you don't have to be a quilter to like the story. But, you know, again, agents are trying to see what's commercial, what can I sell, what's worth my time. Um, and it could be that the agents I send to, and I'm sending to pretty major agents, because why not? Um, they may say yeah it's just not it's not it's not really commercially viable which is not a comment on the quality of the story itself and I understand that so we'll see what happens with it and if I don't get a bite uh, we'll do it ourselves in some way or another but uh yeah but that's so that's a little bit up in the air so right now I'm working on some stories I just finished a story about one of the characters when she's 18 (laughs) you know just doing doing kind of a this is us thing just kind of floating around in time which is kind of fun um this weekend tomorrow afternoon we're having a little uh, i live on spencer street we're having a spencer street gathering we've done this once we did it in june um and then it got way too hot to do it again it's very hard to organize things in in the summer uh, so we're we're meeting again, just from five to six thirty uh, in front of a neighbor's house down the street. So I hope that will be fun. I like my neighbors uh, because I'm a dog walker. I know a lot of my neighbors, and we it was a very it was really a, a fun gathering uh, when we met in June. So we that's happening tomorrow. I have my writing group girls tomorrow, and then Sunday I'm doing um, something for my new book. My new book is called The Class, and it is out and available. And I'm going to a bookstore uh, in Chapel Hill called McIntyre's. And, uh, oh, it's actually, is it Chapel Hill? It's sort of in between. It's this weird place in between Chapel Hill and P- Pittsburgh, but it's a beautiful bookstore. And I'm going to be on a panel with two other middle grade authors. And I don't know if anyone will show up. I certainly have done readings and events where no one showed up. I've done readings events where about 20 people showed up when I expected no one to show up. So I have no idea. But I look forward. To, I don't know these other writers. I mean, I know their work, but I've not met them. So it'll be fun to meet them. Um, yeah. So anyway, so that's that's kind of what's going on. I am thinking about submitting two lecture proposals to the Modern Quilt Guild. Uh, for Atlanta 2021 I feel like uh, the chances of my lecture proposals getting accepted pretty small but why not try um, and, and one would be this, this lecture that I've already done called The Roots of Modern Quilting now that, that is kind of Mary Fawn's territory when we get to you know she, she does some sort of she's done several lectures on that topic over the years, but I have, I have a different take on it than Mary does. Uh, I have different theories about where, why the modern quilting movement began, how it began, um, you know, so, so I, my, my take on it is really, it has a lot to do with 9-11, has a lot to do with Target, which brought mid-century modern design into the 21st century, or actually into the 20th century, in the late 20th century, I think, um, I, re- I just remember going to Target When Jack was a baby And he was born in 99 You know so by that time Target had revamped And they had brought designers in And particularly this one household Designer whose name no, I don't remember But I have written down in my notes um, Who really Brought this whole new look And if you're old enough you remember when Target was just kind of Crappy You know it was like Woolworths which doesn't exist anymore Or Kmart Um, Kmart never, I feel like, never really lifted itself up the way that Target did. Um, and Kmart, when I was a kid, there's a, uh, was just, it it was kind of a ticky-tacky kind of store, um, but there just happened to be a chain, and there's a store, a a chain of stores around here called Roses, which I'm amazed that Roses is still in business, and that reminds me too, it's like where you go and everything is off-brand, and, um, a little not great a little like that's not that shirt's gonna fall apart in the wash kind of stuff and target used to be more like that and of course they it just it was a masterful overhaul and if you you know i'm sorry if you know, if you're in your 30s you probably don't remember it at all um how it used to be but anyway but that changed because of the designers they brought in and and again one, one of the designers was a very much a mid-century modern kind of guide that that aesthetic that's right you know I, I mean and you could argue that of course ikea as well uh, that that mid-century really european look um that has interesting and kind of ironically that look came in as a, a post-world war ii and so much changed in manufacturing post-world war ii right so it which means so much changed in quilting and quilting that's a period post-world war ii where quilting kind of went underground again. It had been hugely popular in the 20s and 30s, and there was in the 20s this uh, colonial revival movement in, in home decor, kind of this romanticizing and mythologizing of colonial times, our you know our forefathers and foremothers, and you know this very r- romantic idea of what life was like in uh, 1776. <laughs> muddy is what it was like kind of smelly is what it was like but anyway so there was a really big quilt movement during that time um, and, and a lot of us are, are you know familiar with it particularly with the 1930s quilts and the feed sack quilts and the Sears quilting contest and all of those things that were going on but at post-world war ii uh, again that died down a little bit and partly just had to do with fashions Within home decor, that looked was very was much more streamlined and sleek, and in manufacturing, you know there was this whole uh, revolution in chemicals and plastics, there, which included a revolution in, in fabrics. You know, and suddenly we had synthetic fabrics coming in. And if you've ever tried to sew with synthetic fabrics, you know that's a different kind of sewing. Um, it can be done. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not necessarily the best sort of f- fabric for making quilts. Although, you know, I've brought up many times Roderick Karakoff's book, uh, Under the Radar. Um, no, it's, it's, what is it? It's un- Unconventional and Unexpected Quilts Under the Radar, 1950 through 1970-something, maybe. The dates, it's definitely 1950 I can't remember what it goes through. In any event, there, there are a number of quilts that he's collected, made during these times, and they have lots of synthetic fabrics in them. Um, but, yeah, it wasn't really until the, you know, the, the 70s that we, that we had the Great Quilt Revival, um, and for any number of reasons. Anyway, you know, that stuff all interests me. I like quilt history a lot. So, um, so my, but my, yeah, so... That it's it's interesting I guess my point was that the mid-century modern design really was one of the things that helped herald the modern quilting movement um and that comes from a period of time when quilts weren't very popular so it's uh, yeah, I, I I think all that stuff is super interesting um and again that's a it's a, a different take from Mary Fawn. so I think she draws more direct lines uh she's you know from you know art quilts and Amish quilts and things like that to modern quilting and, and I I I have some quibbles with 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 her chronology her chronology of the modern quilt movement and what have you but anyway so that's why that's a, the, the reason I'm submitting it it's like here's a different take on what the roots of modern quilting are um and then I thought and this is just I'm throwing this out there and I might talk to you next time and say yeah I ended up not doing it but the the, the deadline is the end of the year and I'm just kind of like why not I like this stuff, it would be fun to write about, it would be, I'd have a year to put everything together, but I thought it might also be interesting to do a lecture on three quilters. Uh, Denise Schmidt, who's very important to the beginning, she's part of the roots of modern quilting, and is someone who I I find very interesting, not only because she's fabulous, but also because, you know, a a lot of her early influences are actually 1930s quilts and utilitarian quilts. Which is very cool, and then Victoria Finley Wolf, who whose work I love, but is very painterly, I think, um, and somewhat postmodern, in a way that Denise is not. And then Sean Kimber, who I think is doing all kinds of interesting things. It's interesting in terms of being kind of a political quilter, but not only that, she is also uh, an amazing designer, uh, an amazing technician, if we want to call it that. But Uh, so she's she's an interesting person on a lot of different levels, and so I thought, yeah, I'd love to actually talk about them, and put together a lecture on them, and um, we'll see, so I thought, why not just throw it out there, it won't take me that long to do a proposal, it might get dismissed immediately, and that's okay, because it's, you know, I've already done the Roots of Modern Quilting lecture uh, with my guild, and I could, you know, and I could Say hey, I want to you know do this. I can do it for the guild as well. So it's it's not like to 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 think about it um, and and try to articulate what those lectures would be. Um, The modern quilting one will be easy since I've already done the lecture. But uh, then the other one, the three quilters would be fun for me to kind of think what would I focus on, what would I write, talk about. So anyway, it's just kind of a fun side project. Um, you know, I have a number of projects in my in my life right now, and uh, including uh, I have a book coming out next summer, which I may have talked about, which is about creative writing for kids. Uh, the title has gone back and forth. The original title was How to Build a Story, and that got changed to The Big What If, and now the publicity and marketing people have decided they like How to Build a Story better. So that it's it's basically based on the workshop that I do, the writing workshop I do with kids, and that's coming out next summer, and I'm blogging around it right now, and putting together an online course that I hope will come out around the same time the book does, so there's that, and then there's the quilt fiction stuff, I'm trying, I'm trying to streamline, I'm trying to be, you know, not make myself crazy, which I can do, because when you've got projects, you know, it's great, except there's, at any time, you could be working on anything, and that's always been, I think, uh, for people who are self-employed, You know, that can be um, one of the drawbacks. There are a lot, a lot of uh, pluses to doing the work that I do, and particularly being able to make a living as a writer and a writing teacher is great. I love it. But sometimes you feel like you should always be working, and that's a little bit hard. And I think that can be true um, if you're a stay-at-home mom, you know, because... (laughs) you don't really have, like, you don't have a boss, you don't have, you know, I mean, you have tasks that you have to complete, but there's not a bottom line, right, and I I remember when, um, you know, I mean, I've worked all through my children's childhoods, but I've worked as a writer, and that's given me a lot of flexibility as a, as a, as a human being, and as a mom, and you know, but I, and I've had that, I remember having that conversation with other moms. It's like, in some ways it's like, when do you take a break? And you can feel guilty, you know, if, if, if you're married and your husband comes home and you're watching TV, it's like, you know, even, and, and certainly the man was never like, why aren't you working? You know, but you feel like somehow you have to, Earn something right that, uh, that you have to be on the job I, if do you know what I mean I don't know if I'm making sense but that idea that it'd be much easier if it's just you check in at nine and check out at five works done you've put in your hours whereas you know when you're home it's like you're kind of always on the clock but could go off the clock whenever and you kind of feel like you need to justify how you're using your time to other people even if they're not asking you to do that so um, anyway That's probably more than you want to hear. Let me tell you about this book that I just finished. It was a book club book. We discussed it last night. I love my book club. We've been meeting a long time, 17 years, um, with some variations. People have come and people have gone, but I think there's about four of us at the core who've been there all along, all 17 years. Anyway, the book we read was um, The Most Fun We Ever Had by Claire Lombardo. It's a big, sprawling family saga kind of book. It's uh, the 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 gist of the book is there's a couple, the parents of four adult daughters, and the parents have this amazing relationship. And in fact, this the, their relationship with each other even is more important than to than their relationship to their children. Which is not to say they don't love their children or take care of their children or that they're bad parents. They're not. But they, they're, they're mildly obsessed with each other. And, and they love each other. And, and, but they have a you know what seems like a really good, healthy relationship. It's not like there's never conflict. There is conflict. They actually go through some bad times. And you're watching the course of this marriage over 40 years. Um, the novel goes back and forth in time. The four daughters, again, uh, the youngest one has just finished college. The oldest one is maybe in her early 40s, because I feel like they start having children right away, and this couple's been married for 40 years. All of them have been oddly handicapped by wanting to have the same sort of relationship their parents have and not being able to find that relationship. One of the daughters has found that relationship but she's widowed fairly young uh, I think she's widowed a few the oldest daughter and she's widowed a few years before the story begins um and moreover she's had a miscarriage so she doesn't have children so anyway it's a the the interesting thing about the book it's very readable none of the daughters is particularly likable <laughs> and that one of, I found one of them. Um, the third daughter, I liked her a lot, but she's in a relationship with a man who's severely depressed, and that's difficult. You know, it's a difficult kind of relationship to be in, and, um, you know, so, so, even, uh, so even though she's a much more likable character than her sister's, it's still a difficult saga. Um, but it's it, I still found it compulsively readable, It's a long book. It's over 500 pages, and it could have been shorter by at least 100 pages. I did some skimming, I have to be honest with you. But if you like family dramas, um, and if you can tolerate some unlikable characters, this is such a thing. This is such a 21st century thing, isn't it? Like, it's like... (laughs) Do we not like people anymore? Are they not? I've, I know so many likable people. I know some unlikable people who are not terrible people, but, you know, and it's not like I hate them. I just don't find them likable. But by and large, I find that lots of likable people in the world. So it's interesting that I keep picking up contemporary fiction where the characters are not likable. <laughs> The parents are likable. They're little idealized. The father, I, I found, idealized. It's like he's a great guy, and he seems like a real, you know, he's, he's very well-developed. At the same time, you can tell. The author is one of five children, and her father has passed away. And, and so you have the sense of a very romanticized father figure. Anyway, but I, I think it's worth reading. Check it out from the library. You know, it's that kind of, I, I'm very happy to recommend it, re- recommend you check it out in the library. It's, do I recommend that you buy it? I don't know. It's maybe, I mean, it, if, if you're looking for a kind of good thick read, maybe, but, but I, you know, I don't want to be responsible for you, you know, paying for a book and be like, ah, I can't believe you told me to buy this book, Francis. Anyway. Okay. I think that that is it. I'm going to get back to work. I've got some tea to drink. I've got odds and ends to take care of, but I did want to check in. I'll check in one more time before uh, I uh before we go into production. Ha huh. um but that is what's going on with me right now. Um and I hope good things are going on with you. Talk to you soon. Cool diary day two. Um it's Monday. It's so it's uh what is it? October twenty first and I was supposed to post this last Wednesday, but you know it's me. How how reliable am I? In some regards I'm highly reliable in the regards of posting this podcast when I say, well, less so. Um, however, I imagine you were losing sleep over it. So anyway, last week was a really busy week in a good, good way. I got a bite from an agent. It's the agent who represents Sandra Dallas. So that's exciting. May not work out. I know that's possible, but it's nice at least to have someone who's interested. She has not seen the manuscript. She, you know, I, I pitched it to her and actually heard from her assistant said oh danielle is very excited about this idea so i sent her the manuscript on friday um and we'll see what happens so maybe she will say this is great let's move forward uh need need some editing which it does and in fact preparing friendship album 1933 to send To this agent. I was like, oh, yeah, there's some stuff I never really (laughs) resolved in that story. It was an interesting process, I have to say. Writing a story, writing a novel, and podcasting the first draft, I was always, I think I managed to stay about 10 chapters ahead. But nonetheless, you know, there was some pressure, a self imposed, I mean, it's one of the reasons why I wanted to do the podcast. Um, to keep that story moving, and once I'd sent a a particular character down a certain path, I couldn't go back and say, whoops, sorry, (laughs) I need to change that path, because I'd already uh, podcasted that chapter, so now there's some stuff that needs to be fixed up, and I know that, and that's, I mean, the beauty of an agent is an agent will go, okay, this is pretty good, and I think it has commercial possibilities. Here's what you need to do to get to get it in shape. I mean, so agents will work as editors for you. So, um, so the draft doesn't have to be perfect for an agent to be interested, but she may read and go, yeah, too long or not quite right or whatever, but at least she has some experience with quote fiction. I'm heading for the porch, carrying my drink. Look, it's radio, audio, hooray. All right, there, there's some leaf blowing going on. It's this beautiful day, man. We're getting some fall weather finally. I love the fall. It makes me so happy. Um, and I love October. <laughs> Yesterday, I'm like, it's almost over. October's almost over. But you know what? I like November too. I love Thanksgiving. I'm looking forward to it. Although it's going to be weird because Jack's not going to be here. He will still be in Copenhagen. Uh and you know I like the idea of like why don't we invite some people over I'm the only one in the family who likes that idea <laughs> I think the other people here aside from Travis I think Travis would join me in, in, in welcoming others into our home for Thanksgiving I think everyone else would be like yeah why don't we just have some dinner and watch some movies you know which I get too but uh sometimes I don't know for uh, we had many years of traveling to other places for Thanksgiving either to my my folks in Louisville or uh the man's folks in charlotte and we kind of let that go over the years and i think particularly with with jack starting college you know uh because his college Davidson, is very close to charlotte so it was that weird thing of him driving back from charlotte on wednesday and then the, the idea of then we're going to re- turn around and, and go um to, to the big family gathering, uh, to the fact that there are no kids, the boys age, all that stuff. And in some ways I feel like maybe we'll start going again later. Um, I know it feels kind of sad, but it also feels like kind of a relief not to do it. I know that's bad. That's bad. Uh, but I, I, do really like the man's family. So it wasn't that, it was really more concern for like poor Will, <laughs> making him go to Charlotte and then he really had no one to hang out with and what have you so anyway anyway my guess is that we will stay here and that we will have a small Thanksgiving and it will be nice and we'll have a good time um and I look forward to it I do I really do uh you know and that's I'm already doing some Christmas reading I'm like why not why not do that now um you know, be, because I, I'm never in a Christmassy mood around Christmas. It's like Thanksgiving is really my big Christmas time. And then everything gets too hectic and too busy. Although I'm not slowing down a little bit as as my children are getting old. Um, but I'm reading this book right now, just dipping into it from time to time, called An Irish Country Christmas. That's not right. I just picked up a novel that's maybe called that. But this there's... Uh, I don't why am I going down this path when I don't have the book in front of me? All right. I'm in my home. I am mobile. So, I think the writer is Alice Taylor, and she has a number of memoirs about growing up in Ireland. I want to say like the 50s and 60s. Okay. It is called an Irish Country Christmas. I feel like I also just checked out a novel. It's a series of stories. Um oh okay and the, the series that I picked an Irish country village by Patrick Taylor and that includes a novel I think an Irish country village Christmas this is called an Irish country Christmas and yes the author's Alice Table, Taylor she's author of to school through the fields so any event they're, they're very lovely books she's a really wonderful writer and so I, I have read feel like at least two of her books and then I got this one last year around Christmas right so that that, therefore I did not read it because I don't really I'm not in the Christmas spirit around Christmas so now I'm reading it now and I'm really enjoying it I'm kind of having Christmas in October sure why not um so anyway yeah so busy in a good way um I'm going to be posting something on the Quilt Fiction Podcast here soon, uh, a short story, and I'm working on another one. So uh, those are things I'm working on my, uh, d- that are taking up a lot of time uh, in a good way. I really love doing it. I'm doing a lot of work right now. I'm really enjoying. I am still working on my friend Kate's quilt. I'm working on the back, which, of course, I'm overcomplicating, even though I swore I would not. But, I, you know, it's, it's, it's not just... Um, there are several issues. One, if I had more of the dark green batik that is the, the primary color of, of, of the quilt, I probably would have just done something in the center, like a center medallion, kind of something funky, and then surrounded it with the, the green. But I ran out of it, and it seems to be... I mean, it seems to be available in some places, but there's certain... You know, it's like if it's not a fat quarter shop or carry Quilting Company... I kind of like, you know, I know there are other online quilting stores, and if you have one that you buy from a lot that's not Fat Quarter Shop, um, let me know what it is, you know, because there are just other ones, like, I don't know who these people are, I've never dealt with them before, it really is, when you're buying online you just it's so helpful to have vendors who you know and you know obviously I talk about fat quarter shop all the time but partly it's because they do they're good and they do what they say and they do it fast and it's good quality and all of that so anyway so that's part of the reason that I'm not doing the simple thing that I thought I would do I'm also feeling really cheap right now so I don't want to go buy three yards of fabric I mean and if I'm going to buy three yards of fabric it's going to be good fabric which means that's expensive and I really should buy four yards because it's a back and I'm just like I don't feel like spending money I'm cheap and so it's like and why spend money when I can piece the back myself so I get myself into these quarters on uh, corners you know um yeah so that's where I am but I have to say I'm kind of having fun because <laughs> I'm just it's just play I'm just playing I like playing um yeah, so but I, I, I'm forcing myself to focus on this because yes, I do like playing a little too much and I'm interested in doing these studies I've been doing. Yesterday I went to a lecture at the North Carolina Museum of Art. They have a very small exhibit up now through mid January, I think, on the <clears throat> excuse me, the art of Joseph and Annie Albers. Now, if you know, um, black mountain school maybe you do maybe you don't this was a college in north carolina up in the mountains that i think it started in the 30s late 20s early 30s and went through the maybe mid 50s i wrote it all. i took notes at this lecture of course i've immediately forgotten everything um But in any event, it was a liberal arts college. I learned many interesting things yesterday. I had always thought of it as an art school because the arts component was so big there. And it's kind of what Black Mountain is known for, all the visiting artists who came, uh, particularly in the summer. So like the dancer Merce Cunningham and the poets Robert Creeley and Charles Olson went up there. Uh, one of my absolute favorites Robert the, the artist collage artist painter Robert Rauschenberg was up there the painter Jacob Lawrence and his wife went up and I think they were on the faculty um, so all sorts of amazing people but it really was a liberal arts college and it was a work college so they farmed uh, I don't know how many students were there and I don't know how many students <laughs> ever graduated but it was it, it was just it was a super kind of neat Interesting place, and that this was happening, like in the 1930s. Um, There's a lot of interesting, funky stuff that went on in the, the 20s, 30s, and 40s. You know, it just that didn't get a ton of mainstream press. In any event, Joseph and Annie Albers uh, had met at students in the Bauhaus in Germany, which was an art school and in the 20s and Joseph went on to teach there and when the fascists came into power when the Nazis came into power they were very against modern art and thought it was degenerate and so they closed down schools like the Bauhaus Um, and I think Annie Albers had some some Jewish ancestors I don't think she was considered herself Jewish, but that you didn't have to um, if you had people in your family who were Jewish, grand, a grand, grandparent or what have you, uh, and so they decided they, they kind of needed to get out of Germany, and they were invited by the, the head of Black Mountain School to come and be on the faculty, and so they came and taught for a while, I, you know, maybe as many as 10 years, um, and Joseph Albers' thing, he was a, a printmaker and a painter, uh, and he's all about color. He had a lot of color theory, and that was an interesting thing. Someone asked a great question. If you look at Albert's work, uh, if you're familiar at all, all with um, Rothko, who does these sort of color fields, you could see like you, you you might wonder if there was a connection. And someone actually raised that question in, in the Q and A session yesterday. And uh and, and the lecturer whose name was julie or julia it was wonderful and i'm sorry to not have her full name for you she is on the faculty at warren wilson college which is up in the mountains uh it's at Asheville, um not that far from black mountain and she was wonderful she was a marvelous speaker she was uh very informed uh so ha- was I mean, she, it wasn't like a laugh fest, but you could tell she was just someone who had a good sense of humor and was uh, a good energy. I really liked her a lot, but she said, "Yeah, no, that the difference was is that uh, Albers was not interested in invoking emotion with his color work. He was really interested in experimenting with color and and the the relativism of color, which we as quilters know that you can have. You have you could have a block of you know orange." square and you put it next to uh, green and it, the orange, it looks one way. And then if you replace that green square with a blue square, the orange, you know, looks, you know, looks different. It looks different, you know, but we know that color is relative and, um, and, and different colors play with each other in different ways. And that's kind of, I think one of the interesting things about Making quilts is, is is that color play. So that's what Albers was. Joseph Albers was very interested in. Um, Annie Albers was I think a, a weaver in, in her early days as an artist, in part because the Bauhaus textiles work was the only thing that women could do. That's the only kind of field they were allowed to create in at the Bauhaus. And she but she did really amazing stuff, really interesting pattern work. With her weaving, she's really worth looking up. I have an Annie Albers board on one of my I, on one of my Pinterest pages. I have many Pinterest pages. <laughs> I have many you know accounts, I should say, um, because her, you know. And and if you're interested in modern quilting and need inspiration, either of the Albers will uh, provide plenty of it. They're, they're such interesting artists. So anyway, so I, I enjoyed that, and I think you know it made me think about. Um, you know, just the work that we do as quilters with color and pattern and shape. And you know, I, I think that quilts can and often do carry emotions with them. Um, and sometimes those emotions are actually palpable, more often, the emotions are connected to the stories behind the quilts, which is why I love the Quilt Alliance and the, the documentation we do of quilt stories because so many quilts do have really interesting stories behind them. Um, I don't want to get too woo-woo. I don't feel like every quilt I see, I'm like, oh, I can feel the emotions of the maker in that quilt. That's not true. But sometimes you can, which interests me. But for me, I love the formal concerns of quilt design. Like, and, 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 you know, it's like Jay, the art quilt maker, always says you have to make visual decisions visually. It's happening on the board. And it's fascinating. And that's why I feel like right now I'm, I'm having a good time plane because it's like and just doing these smaller studies because you get to to mess around with some of that you know it's like i'm not trying to make a big bed size quilt here i just want to see how these colors work together how to make this you know i have a design in my mind does it really work on the wall sometimes it does and sometimes it doesn't so it was a so the lecture was inspiring in that way because i feel like the work that that Joseph and Annie Albers were do, were, did um, just resonates with the kind of work that quilters do they should have been quilters quite frankly and that would have been the interesting thing you think of all the, the stories lost to the world but you know, that was something that uh, the woman giving the lecture talked about is that the, the students and faculty at Black Mountain actually were connected with the people in the community and this is, we're talking about southern Appalachia in the 1920s and 30s um, and the, you know, and what's interesting about that time is that, particularly in the mountains, people were still really isolated, which mean, and, and when you're isolated, uh, you're, can be, become pretty idiosyncratic, you know? And I think that, you know, it's an interesting period of time to study, um, because, there were communities in the mountains of north carolina virginia eastern kentucky and tennessee that had remained pretty insulated They're communities that you know that could look um where people you know where families had been in the mountains for 200 years you know and had been fairly isolated and insulated. And so that's why, the, you know, the song catchers went up. Because they, cause they were, you know, because the, the, songs that pe- people were still singing these old folk ballads from England that hadn't changed much. You know, that's what, you know, with, with, uh, music travels. And as it travels, it tends to change and uh, mutate and... What have you? And so even songs, you know, any kind of folk song, there's going to be like 20 different versions. The same. It's the same with quilt blocks, right? They're going to be, you know, any quilt block is going to have 10 different names, Um, you know, and 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 you'll see a quilt block that was, say, a a quilt design from the mid 1800s, Ohio, and somebody. (laughs) And somehow it travels down to North Carolina, to Central North Carolina, and changes. And in that travel, has changed some, um, having to do with all kinds of different factors: the skill of the makers, to the available materials, to kind of community standards of what's beautiful, et cetera, et cetera. So all that's fascinating. But in up in the mountains, you have these communities where there wasn't a lot of in and out, right? There weren't there weren't new songs coming in. So the old songs kind of stayed the same. So there were people, folklorists, and culture workers, as they were called, who went up and were recording these songs. And, you know, so, so uh, you know, it's all, I find all that stuff really interesting and cool. And if you don't, then the last five minutes have just been pure torture for you. And I'm sorry, but... <laughs> Anyway, um, I think it probably would have been very interesting uh, to be Joseph and Annie Albers and going and talking to the people of that community. Again, many who had been isolated and insulated from the outside world for a long time. But also, I think, uh, after initial suspicions, and when I lived up in the mountains in the 1990s, there was still some suspicion (laughs) toward outsiders because... It was so hard to get up there. You know, I think it was a learned suspicion that had come down over the years. But yeah, if someone was coming up to your homestead who was a stranger, you're like, you have no reason to be on my land and you need to start talking really quickly. But I think once they got past that, um, my, my guess is the people were really hospitable, um, as, as the, most mountain people uh, tend to be once you kind of break through that initial resistance to your very presence. <laughs> Um, and, and so that I would have loved to know more about that, and and also it's yeah it's interesting to think because there were weavers up there uh, in the mountains. There there was a lot of a lot of weavers and quilt makers, and there may have been some back and forth. And I like to think about that, but I, I think that's probably all lost to history. So anyway, I went to a lecture. It was interesting. I'm glad I went. Um, and I think I'm going to go ahead and end up here and. Um, you know, I hope that when the next next time we speak, I will be pretty close to finishing the Kate's, the back of Kate's quilt. I'm, I'll take a picture of where I am now, and post it. Um, I do want to tell you, um, I just picked up a new book. It's called Pilgrimage to Eternity. It's by Timothy Egan, who is a writer for the New York Times. He lives in Seattle. He writes a lot about the West. Um, Probably the book he is best known for is The Worst Hard Times about the Oklahoma... about the Dust Bowls in the 1930s. Dust Bowl. I said Dust Bowl. I'm like, is that right? That sounds so strange. Is that a word? But I think it is. Um, and I guess it's the Oklahoma Dust Bowl. But that, I'm like, were there Dust Bowls? Or just one... Uh, anyway. And so now he... So ego is a uh, raised Catholic, not... Kind of an agnostic here. He's in his, I think he's 64, and he decided uh, after he was kind of his mother died, and and as you know, was very uh, a traumatic experience for him. She was a, a lifelong practicing Catholic, a progressive Catholic, and he decided after her death to to uh, go on pilgrimage and do the great pilgrim tra- trails, like Canterbury Trail. Um, and the the main trail he's on, I think, is one that leads from Canterbury to Rome, and I can't remember what it's called. But we're still we've just moved gone from England into France. It's a, he's a wonderful writer. It's a really interesting book. But you know, part of his is for he felt like he sh- you know he's been an agnostic for a long time. And It was kind of time to fisher cut bait. It's like either believe or don't. But that kind of middle ground, you know, that lukewarmishness is like he wanted to leave that space. So I don't know how it ends. Uh, where he ends up. I'm hoping good things happen for him, but it's a really interesting book if you're looking for some good nonfiction to read by an excellent nonfiction writer. So, okay. I'm going to say goodbye. I hope this finds you well. I hope wherever you are, you are having um, a, a lovely October. And, um, yeah, and that November will be even better. Alright, talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Off-Kilter Quilt. Come visit me online at offkilterquilt.com. Until next time, this is Frances. Remember, life is short. Quilt first.